Yes, I called it genocide because it become clearer and clearer that Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of even being able to be a Ukrainian. And uh, the, mount, the evidence is mounting. It's different than it was last week. The more evidence is coming out of the, literally, the horrible things that the Russians have done in Ukraine. And we're going to only learn more and more about the devastation. And uh, we'll let the lawyers decide internationally whether or not it qualifies. But it sure seems that way to me. I'm Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and welcome back to another episode of The Naked Pravda. It's been a few weeks since we released a new show. Since my last broadcast, Russia's foreign ministry banned me indefinitely from visiting Russia. And then a few days later, I got COVID with the rest of my family. So that sucks, the COVID thing more immediately so. But I'm pretty bummed not to be able to go back to Russia again anytime soon. Like the rest of Medusa's staff, I had no imminent plans to vacation in Moscow, but Now I can't even daydream about being there until, I don't know, the fall of Putinism, I guess. Oh well. On this week's episode of The Naked Pravda, I spoke to four experts about war atrocities in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Each guest gave in-depth answers to some very tricky questions, so you'll have a lot to chew on here. But first I want to say a little about how this show came together, because allegations of Russian atrocities in Ukraine, especially genocide, are a sensitive subject. I learned this firsthand a couple of weeks ago when I solicited recommendations on Twitter asking whom I should approach for this episode. I upset people because I said I wanted to frame the show as a debate between experts about whether the Russian military's actions in Ukraine constitute genocide. As you may know, I am not Ukrainian, I'm not Russian either, and the spectacle of some dude in New England announcing from his iPhone that he wanted to arbitrate where the Ukrainians are being subjected to the crime of crimes. That was offensive. I didn't mean it like that, but we'll talk plenty about intent later on this show. I am grateful to the four scholars who spoke to me for this episode, despite how clumsily I framed my initial question. To be clear, I am still interested in whether Russia's actions constitute genocide as it's understood legally and historically. And I think it's worth discussing the legal and political repercussions of that designation, or its absence. But this issue, both genocide as a concept and the atrocities now being committed against the people of Ukraine, that's too big to accommodate my original plan to debate the yes or no of it. That was a dumb idea. So what I ended up doing, once I was actually talking to experts who understand this subject, was to ask all four scholars a handful of broad questions about atrocities, war crimes, genocide, and how the world has handled these things in the past. I ask guests some overlapping questions, and in other cases, our conversations went off in other directions. As I said, this show is a long one, so it's divided into three main parts. Part one, the legal terms used to designate mass violence and crimes in warfare. 
and genocide's special legacy. Part 2. How War Crimes and Genocide are Prosecuted, Establishing Genocidal Intent and Upholding Justice. And finally, Part 3, The Politics of Genocide Allegations and the Consequences of Taking Them Seriously. So here's Part 1, the legal terms used to designate mass violence and crimes and warfare and genocide's special legacy. When we talk about Russian war crimes in Ukraine, which are ongoing, obviously, is there a hierarchy of egregiousness with genocide, you know, at the very top? Or is that not the perspective to take when discussing war crimes from a, from a, from a legal perspective, let's say? From a legal perspective, no. That's Aaron Farrell Rosenberg, an adjunct professor at the University of Cincinnati's College of Law and an attorney specializing in international criminal law and reparations. There is no hierarchy of crimes, but it's certainly true that a number of legal commentators, legal scholars, and people who talk about the law do see a hierarchy of crimes, which often carries some sort of um, different moral reasoning or, or values that, that go into terms of how it's, how it's structured. But from a purely, like if you're asking me for the law itself, no, crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, um, these are all international crimes that all equally shock the conscience of mankind and um, they are different and they have different harms. They are not worse or more grave one or the other. So it's not like genocide is a more aggravated form of some, some lower crime. No. They're all, they all exist kind of horizontally. Yeah. As, and, okay. And so what, ex, what are, there, are there definable differences between a war atrocity and genocide, or are they, is one a category of the other, or how does one distinguish between these in, in legal terms? So that's a great question. So the the legal term that we would use is the contextual elements, but I'll just basically describe what they are. Okay. So if you think about ordinary crimes, like any crime that in whatever country you might be, you would recognize the crime of murder, mm-hmm. uh, assault, robbery, right? Property destruction. Yeah. What makes ordinary crimes international is the context in which they are committed, right? So, for example, if the crime of murder is committed on a widespread and systematic basis, according to a state policy, then individual, those individual murders are, can be a part of a, an attack on the civilian population, right, of murder as a crime against humanity. So murder, you recognize, is just that that can be prosecuted in your own country, right? When it's committed at this widespread systematic basis as a part of a state policy, it becomes a crime against humanity. When you're in an armed conflict, that's the contextual element of war crimes. There are the Geneva Conventions set out, you know, the conduct of hostilities, the laws of armed conflict. And so within an armed conflict, if you violate the Geneva Conventions, uh, what's called a grave breach, that becomes a war crime. So, for example, killing a civilian, that's a war crime. Raping 
a civilian, killing someone who's hors de combat, right? Who has uh, a combatant who has uh, surrendered. These are war crimes. War crimes can only be committed in armed conflict, right? Crimes against humanity can occur in armed conflict or in peacetime. The crime of genocide can occur in peace or during war as well. So like crimes against humanity. And genocide is essentially where you have five different acts, which are called sort of the underlying acts. So uh, you would have the either murder, prevention of births, causing severe mental harm, separating of children that is being carried out against what's called a protected group, which means a group on the basis of their nationality, their ethnicity, their religion. And you're doing that act with the specific intent of physically destroying the group. So you're not, if you want to think about it, you're not necessarily looking at genocide as it's made up of individual acts, right? But those acts are really an attack on the group. I see. With the goal of destroying the group. And when defining these these protected groups, do the do the defining characteristics do they have to be immutable? Is there a specific list? Like in the Ukrainian context, would for it to be genocide, would Russia have to be targeting every single eth- ethnic Ukrainian, or would it would it qualify to merely target people that identify that call themselves Ukrainian or people that 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 you know wear a, a uniform or something like that? Like how does in terms of, of defining the group, what are the what are, what's the criteria exactly? Well that's a that's a great question and there's there's a lot of debates about all of this. So nationality would be I think the group that we would be thinking about in terms of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um this would be the destruction of a group on the basis of nationality and not necessarily ethnicity, right? So we wouldn't be thinking about Ukraine as an ethnicity, but rather as a nationality. Mm-hmm. And there's very little case law, to be quite frank about it, about what exactly that means. Mm. All of these, as you can imagine, when you actually start digging into them, are pretty complicated. Yeah. Because what we mean by race and ethnicity also changes over time. Right. And even when you think of when the Genocide Convention was created, or even if you think about how Jews were referred to Mm -hmm. by the Nazis, for example, right? Those were laws that are referred to as, right, race laws. So, you know, know, and then it's sort of, you know, well, Jews, and this is, you know, of course, uh, as someone who's Jewish, I can obviously (laughs) talk about this a lot, but it's, you know, it's it's a thing that is often raised, you know, is it an ethnicity? Is it a religion? Is it a race? And so this is this is actually becomes quite complicated as part of the genocide convention. I think that Russia, when we look at the way that Russia is speaking about as like as the state is speaking, they're they're clearly speaking about the entity Ukraine as a state. Mm-hmm. And that is what the objection seems to be about. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, though, just to sort of point out on the other side, when you think about, because genocide has been such a part of this conversation all the way from 2014, right? Yeah, yeah. It's in 2014 where Russia alleges genocide was committed, right? Mm -hmm. And its allegation, which, by the way, has been found to have really zero credibility 
in each of the investigations that have that have looked at this. But what was their argument was that it was about ethnic ethnic Russians mm-hmm. or well ethnically Russian Ukrainians, right? So from their perspective, they have presented this idea of a genocide against people who are ethnically Russian. Mm-hmm. And now the question is, is Russia actually committing genocide or is there a risk that they're committing genocide against people on the basis of their Ukrainian nationality? So we really have all of these classifications kind of coming together in a really volatile situation and I think creating a lot of confusion, to be honest. Is there any precedent for 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 a genocide against a nationality in in the way that Ukrainians are defined in this conflict, because the the genocides I'm familiar with, or at least I think the layman is familiar with, are probably the more like racially defined groups. At least like I mean, the, the Jews were racially defined by the Nazis. The you know in Rwanda, it was a tribal or racial conflict, as far as I understand it. Is that the the bulk of precedent that with race, or is it is that not the way genocide has worked in the past? Well, certainly, if you mean um, in terms of the legal cases, yes, exactly, right, because it's really you know if we're talking about uh, Rwanda, if we're talking about Srebrenica, if we're maybe discussing the more the more modern context of the Rohingya or or the Uyghurs, where there's a there's a question of whether or not genocide is happening, right? We're talking about either racial, religious, or ethnic targeting, right? So there isn't, in in terms of a, a court case, if you will, that you can point to that necessarily recently has to do with nationality, but it is a protected class. Mm-hmm. And I think that the closest example you would get would be some of the, the cases coming out of Poland post-World War II, which did consider what the Nazis did in terms of attempting to destroy the Polish I see. national identity as right. genocidal. And so it, it doesn't have to be that the aggressor seeks to exterminate every last member of a particular group. It's enough to target their state infrastructure and, and anybody who claims that identity. It's, it, it can be more about ideas and institutions than literal destruction of every human being. Well, it doesn't have to be literal destruction of every human being. Mm-hmm. And it's important to, to realize that it, what it's about is the intent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? That you in, you're doing one of these acts that I mentioned, right? right? Either murder, causing severe mental or physical harm to members of the group. You're imposing conditions of life that are meant to destroy the group. You're separating children, which is one of the things we're seeing, yeah, right? Yeah. Ukrainian children being sent to Russia. Mm-hmm. But what the Genocide Convention itself provides is for destruction in whole or in part. So genocide itself, like the Genocide Convention itself, does not require full intent to destroy the entire group. And it certainly doesn't require that you actually do destroy the entire group. Right. But really what your intent is, it does need to be what's called in part, which has been interpreted to to be significant enough to impact the group as a whole. I put the same question about a hierarchy of horrors to Eugene Finkel, an associate professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University and the author of the book, Ordinary Jews, Choice and Survival During the Holocaust. So technically there shouldn't be any hierarchy of suffering, you know, from a legal point of view. 
and there shouldn't be any hierarchy of suffering from a moral point. From a political point of view, of course, the story is very different. And there is a very clear hierarchy of suffering and of crimes, from war crimes to crimes against humanity to atrocity crimes with the genocide being at the very top. And that's why calling it a genocide you know, brings so much attention. You know, had people come out and said, well, you know, there are war crimes, so even across atrocity crimes happening in Ukraine, well, I'm not sure we would, we would be having this conversation right now. But precisely because genocide is such a sensitive topic that it draws so much attention. Genocide is a legal term, but it's also, it's also a political term and it's an historical term and it's a moral term and we cannot separate one from another. And we do have separate conversations going on. Well, one is a legal conversation, whether it fits the definition of genocide, which is one definition from the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide from 1948, and whether it, and whether what we see in Ukraine will be enough to prosecute people for genocide, which is a much higher power. And quite a few legal scholars, the most prominent is, of course, Philip Sands, saying, well, you know, we should be using this term because the bar is so high that it's almost impossible to meet. So we shouldn't disappoint Ukrainians and their supporters by invoking the term. So, so there is a legal, there is a legal conversation going on and it is important. But there is also another conversation that is going on among scholars of genocide, which are not bound, you know, by this requirement of putting people in jail or prosecuting them and meeting the legal requirements. And that is a conversation that I, that I'm engaged in. And this is the conversation with which politicians are being engaged because they're also thinking less about, you know, future accountability. But the president Biden said that conventions determination be made by, will be made by lawyers. You know, it hasn't prevented him from calling it a genocide. And there is also a moral conversation, a historical conversation. And it's pretty normal because genocide is different things to different people. And it's important to understand that calling it a genocide does not necessarily mean that, you know, people will be prosecuted for the crime of genocide because different scholars apply different criteria and interested in different things. So is the bar lower when making the political determination than saying the legal one? Or is it just that, I mean, what's the, what's the difference, I guess? Like, why is it, why is it more plausible to do it politically than legally? I'm not sure. I'm not sure the bar is lower. The bar is just different. Hmm. From the legal point of view, you need to focus on individual perpetrations and their motivations. You know, as historians, as social scientists, well, well, looking at the event as a whole, right. without thinking well whether this or that person should that or that Ukrainian civilian, whether we will we will have enough evidence to convict them for, to convict them, but rather looking at what's happening at the macro level. So I thought that the bar is lower, just different types of determination, different types of evidence. So clearly there's a divide between the strictly legal definition of genocide and the meaning that most people grasp intuitively. Dirk Moses has written about this. He's a professor of global human rights history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the author of The Problems of Genocide and the senior editor of the Journal of Genocide Research. Well, there are a number of problems. You know. One is that there is, in, in terms of the international publics, if you want to use a term like that, appreciation of mass criminality, there is a 
a hierarchy of criminality, you know, with genocide at, at its apex, with as the crime of crimes, the term often used, and uh, it's often in the subtitle of books on genocide, and that phrase will appear in many books on the subject. And it was invented by the person who coined the concept of genocide, Raphael Lemkin. He, he called it the crime of crimes. He wanted his crime to be the number one crime, the most shocking attack on human beings possible. The most heinous of crimes is also a term he used. But that's not the case in international law. There is no real hierarchy. Uh, the, you know, crimes against humanity uh, for the International Criminal Court are not less grave than genocide. Mm. So there's that, that, that's one problem. Okay. Now, related to that problem is that in view of this hierarchy, which obtains in also in politics and not just international public opinion, because they're related, you know, people only seemed, seem to be shocked, genuinely shocked when something can be called genocide mm -hmm. and, you know, crimes against humanity somehow is less grave. Uh, which I think is itself kind of shocking, okay? Because the acts, the acts which constitute many crimes against humanity, because there are many elements or many different acts which can occur that can be classed as crimes against humanity are about the, about the same as genocide. The difference with genocide is that you have this special intent requirement, which is the destruction of an ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. Okay? You, with crimes against humanity, you just need to show that these were done and they were part of a widespread and systematic campaign. But the intention is irrelevant. This is they happen. So that's why it's much easier to prove crimes against humanity. And you'll find far more prosecutions for that than, than for genocide. Uh, and um, obviously more prosecutions for war crimes as well, much easier to prove. Not that any of them are easy to prove, but they're, they're easier than, than genocide. Okay. Right, right. So, so there are these two problems. One is that there's this radical distinction between uh, the legal and the political. And then there's this issue between the, uh, this issue with this hierarchy, which is not a legal proposition. It's sort of a political one. Uh, why that is the case is something that we could discuss. A lot of it got to do with Holocaust memory, I think. Right. Uh, and then, then there's the issue related to that question of hierarchy is that crimes which quote unquote fall short or do not rise, which are terms that you hear all the time to the level of genocide are considered to be less grave yeah. when the impact on the civilian population is the same. Mm -hmm. so there are a lot, there are other problems of genocide, but that, uh, those are two major ones and they, they are coming up in this conflict in Ukraine as well as other conflicts in world politics. When speaking sort of in, in the way that, that politicians do, or just public intellectuals, not in the sort of narrower legal sense, is it that people are just they're 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 willing to accept more in terms of proving intent i mean are they still working with roughly the same definition they're just kind of the bar is lower for what counts as evidence i think the sensitization to mass criminality which i admire by the way and applaud in international public opinion uh is indexed to an understanding of genocide which is much broader than the legal definition but is more accurate in terms of what the destruction of a group entails. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's much closer to the, uh, if you like, original or first definition of genocide that Raphael Lemkin proposed in 1944 in, in a book about the 
Axis occupation of, uh, of Europe, it's called Axis full and occupied Europe, basically Nazis and its allies, right? Yeah. How do they, how do they occupy? Uh, he used that term because of various international legal conventions, especially the Hague Convention about the laws of occupation, right? Uh, how do they conduct their occupations after the conquest of Europe? Mm-hmm. And that's not just the Germans, but also their allies. And he identified the destruction of, of nations, for example, the Polish nation, the Jewish people, and so forth, as a, a new form of occupation, which he called genocide. Mm-hmm. And that, that hadn't been criminalized in international law at the time, mm-hmm. uh, which, which did regulate the way states conducted themselves. This is in the Hague, Hague Convention of 1899, 1907 and did protect individuals, you know, among, in the occupied population, but it didn't, it didn't proscribe the destruction of, you know, entire nations, ethnic groups, and so forth, the religions. Mm-hmm. And that's why he invented this concept in order to propose an, an, an augmentation of international law. Is this where we get, we get ideas of like the soul of a nation and it's, it's yeah. there's somewhat, it's somewhat abstract, but it yeah. certainly resonates, you know, broadly. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the, in the interwar period, which was a period of, you know, enormous nationalism, the, you know, nationalists and nationalist movements believed in, in propositions that today we may not, you know, they would say, you know, the Polish nation or the Ukrainian nation has a spirit or a soul mm-hmm. and that, that you know, we, today we would say national culture or something, okay? Sure. Civics. Uh, it's, something it's very, civic, it's yeah. Very, yeah, it's a very romantic notion of nationalism. And that, you know, the bearers of this national spirit or soul are school teachers, uh, intellectuals, the bureaucracy. Those are the nation-bearing strata of a population. So Lemkin, Lemkin thought that, like many, that the building blocks of humanity were ethnical, racial, and religious groups, especially national groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that people's foremost uh, identities were that as members of a nation uh, and that everything flowed from that. So that needed to be the protected group uh, rather than civilians as such, you know, which is what the Geneva Conventions aim to protect. Okay, it's a, it's, a, it's a different way of approaching protecting civilians. Lemkin was interested in protecting civilians, but only certain categories of civilians. Okay, and that's why uh, victims of genocide or people who are claiming they're victims of genocide are, uh, are national groups or people who are speaking on behalf of national groups. Right? Well, the, well, I mean, it can't be doubted that in the empirical evidence suggests, for example, in the case in Ukraine, is that the, the, that we have see, read many statements by political leaders and in, in the Russian public sphere, where they aim to de-Ukrainize Ukraine, to destroy the nation, okay? Now, However, the problem legally, and this is something that your other speakers may address, is that nationality as such is not protected in the genocide convention. Human lives are protected. They're, it's only genocidal if, the, if individuals who are perceived as being members of a particular targeted group are killed because they're or persecuted with life-threatening consequences for being members of that ethnic or national or religious group. Mm-hmm. But the idea of a nationality, you know, a national spirit is, is not something the genocide convention gestures to because it dropped the notion of cultural genocide. I see. For the convention, the idea is that a perpetrator is guilty of genocide if his or her intention is to destroy an ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. And then, you know, then the convention lists five ways of doing that, right? 
and each of those five ways pertains to the treatment of individuals for being members of that group. Okay. So it's an ascription of identity. Okay. And in Ukraine now, what we're seeing doesn't quite meet that narrow definition. Is that, is that what you're saying? Or Well, we don't know yet. Sure. Uh, right, it's right. really early days. I mean, in order to, I mean, first of all, I have to say here to your, make clear to your readers or listeners that I'm not a lawyer. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so these technical things need to really be answered by the lawyers. But from the reading I've done, uh, the reading I've done, the, you know, states are not guilty of genocide. Individuals are, okay, uh, in, according to the the Rome Statute and so forth. So you need to be able to identify particular individuals who gave orders, and and this will be in the context of a military a military campaign. Okay? I see. Um, to attack civilians solely because they are members of the you know Ukrainian people, mm -hmm. with the intention to uh, destroy them solely because they're members of the Ukrainian people right. and because they may be combatants or may be, you know, partisans yeah. or may be in the way of shelling against a, you know, human shields as it were in the way, because, um, they were next to a military objective, you know, once, once military objectives sort of muddy the waters, then it, then yeah. proving this pure special intent is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason we see so few prosecutions for genocide. Now, so one thing I'm trying to wrap my head around here is that it seems as, as though what you've, what you've told me is that Raphael Lemkin, that his original concept of genocide was more expansive than the one that was ultimately adopted. Yes. But, but he also had a sort of old-fashioned understanding of what defines a protected group. So in some, it's, it's almost as though some aspects of the original genocide definition were more expansive and closer to what we are familiar with as sort of ordinary people today, but there's also this aspect to it that doesn't really, it's, it's not, doesn't, it doesn't reconcile as easily with modern day notions. Correct. Okay. I think <laughs> that, right. it is complicated. I mean, Lemkin... Lemkin is a really interesting figure. Who, sure, and we're all products of our yeah, times. And all he, that, yeah. It's an ambiguous legacy. I mean, I, I mm. you know, it, there's no doubt the Nazis did target Jews and other groups. They thought for security reasons in their own paranoid world, right? Right. But there's no doubt that throughout history in the 20th century, various groups, national, racial, religious, but also class and other groups have been uh, targeted for destruction by states. Okay. The, the, the problem with the genocide convention is not only that the, the list of protected groups is so narrow, you know, it, it excludes class groups, for example, or, you know, it, may, it, it makes it very difficult to prove genocide, for example, in the Cambodian case, because it's the, it's one's own government that's doing this, mm. you know, so I can, some people use the term auto genocide, right? But the probably the issue is in the convention, it talks about destruction of a group as such. This, as such, uh, adds a, a qualification, which makes it very difficult to prove in legal terms. And that's something very, very different, I think, from the, the way the public understands these things. So what it means is that the, the targeted group is attacked uh, with an attempt to destroy it, uh, not because 
some of its members may have been engaged in an insurgency, mm -hmm. uh, but solely on the grounds of identity, you know, like as a massive hate crime. Mm -hmm. But that's not how that's not how uh, most military encounters or you know counterinsurgencies and so forth, you know, attacks on civilians take place. They take place in the context of some kind of military or armed conflict, mm -hmm. and the Genocide Convention really has little room for that. For another perspective on the differences between the legal and political understandings of war crimes and genocide. I turn to Dr. Maria Varaki, a lecturer in international law at the War Studies Department at King's College London and the co-director of the War Crimes Research Group. What we have experienced during the last months, we have seen this type of uh, paradox, if, if I can call it, especially between political leaders, the language of uh, the language that political leaders use. Uh, about uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. You know, we had it already from, and the language we lawyers use, to put it simply like that. So we already saw President Biden from the very beginning characterizing Putin as a war criminal, right? And uh, later there were other political leaders who started talking about this is genocide. This is genocide. That put the onus on legal experts, you know, to explain to the public the differences and also to highlight that it's a different thing to call it genocide in the public discourse, mm -hmm. but it has different implications when we describe legally a particular atrocity, whether right. it's a war crime, a crimes against humanity, or genocide. Yes, it's true that we say that there is no uh, an official hierarchy between the different crimes. However, genocide is a very particular crime because it requires, legally speaking, you need to prove that there is a particular intent. Mm -hmm. As we say, there is genocidal intent. Right. So the perpetrators should, we have to prove that the perpetrators carry this particular intent to destroy, in part or in total, a group of people based on national, uh, ethnical, racial, or religious characteristic, a religious group. Is there, is there any legal understanding or definition of what in part means? Because that sounds really vague. Yeah, we have jurisprudence coming from the from this uh, ad hoc tribunal for, forming, for, for, for Rwanda in particular, you know, mm -hmm. where there it was a clear case of genocide where the court, and it was a big challenge, you know, for the judges and for the lawyers of that before that court to understand, to interpret this meaning. So it requires some uh, element number, a quantitative element, but, you know, it's not a matter of saying, oh, I have 200 and this is genocide, you know, 200 victims, but if I have 150, it's not right. a, a genocide. It depends very much on the, on the other factors. It depends very much on the context. And this is why I say that you, we don't have one solution that fits everything. We have seen that in cases now. For example, before the ICTY, the special tribunal, the ad hoc tribunal for former Yugoslavia, several states and people talked about genocide, genocide, and still, legally speaking, genocide was only declared in the case of Srebrenica, mm -hmm. okay, where you had 8,000 masculine men and boys, but nowhere else in former Yugoslavia. Because of intent? Because of what they could prove with intent? Because they could prove the intent. It was the, 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 the 8,000 monthly men and boys were executed. They could prove this particular intent. And it's very difficult to, to, to infer. I mean, sometimes you can have direct evidence, but most of the time you need to infer it indirectly. Mm. Okay, indirectly. And uh, as we speak, leaders and, uh, and people, you know, who are involved in those atrocities become smarter and smarter, try to, to, to slip away. Uh, however, we have new technologies and that helps a lot as well. And we have seen that in cases like, for example, before the International Court of Justice, we have the case of Myanmar, 
now where a state is accused, you know, for the crime of genocide. Mm -hmm. And their satellite images helped a lot. The same applies in the case of Ukraine now. We have all these new tools of technology, satellite images, drone footages, uh, interception of services, of security. I mean, it, it's fascinating, but it gives us more tools. That doesn't mean that it's not difficult. It's very difficult to prove this genocidal intent, the particular intent that you want to destroy a particular group. Part two of today's episode, how war crimes and genocide are prosecuted, establishing genocidal intent and upholding justice. My first question here went to Professor Rosenberg. When determining genocidal intent, what's admissible in terms of, of making that determination? Like, is it strictly state rhetoric? Is it strictly the speeches of leaders or like inter in intercepted communications between the actual perpetrators of the violence? Or is it accepted that you can also go into like the state propaganda and pull from that and say, well, this, this proves something. Because I've seen, I've seen some studies that, that, that argue that you know, the Kremlin propaganda today, that's, that some of their rhetoric against you know, the essentially denying Ukrainian statehood and so on, that that belongs in the discussion about a, a potential genocide occurring in Ukraine now. Yes. And I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that everything that you've identified is definitely relevant. And one of the things I would just say is that, you know, any crime where you where you have to establish intent is always going to be complicated from a legal perspective, right? Mm -hmm. If you ever watch like a police procedural or one of these like courtroom procedurals, you know, they'll, they'll have these conversations of, you know, we have to prove that they meant to shoot the guy and like, right. it's not enough to just show, you know, and that's, those are, that's just a regular part of the law that, mm -hmm. you know, how you prove intent is it is difficult. It's often not based on sort of, you know, the smoking gun of you've got the plan that says, you know, we are going to uh, commit genocide against X people, right? That's not the way that it usually goes. So usually you have to either infer that there was a policy, mm -hmm. be able to, you know, establish that there was a policy, or you can look at, you can infer genocidal intent from conduct. But it's but it really has to be quite clear, right? That 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 is the only reasonable conclusion that can be drawn if you don't have concrete or direct evidence of genocidal intent. Mm -hmm. So the things that you look at, as you've said, yes, hate speech, and maybe to not sort of just list things, but to kind of explain what you're looking for. If you think about what are the different factors which create an environment that's that's really conducive. Mm -hmm. to a situation devolving into genocide. Right. Right. Those are, those are going to be your indicators of genocidal intent. And is it your, is it your impression that, that we're seeing those, those uh, signals from, from Russia now? Very much so. Though I would say that I don't, um, I don't, view them primarily from a question of whether I think genocidal intent is being established. I view them as very serious risk indicators of a potential genocide. I see. And and I think that they are that they are definitely present mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. 
and that the messaging being sent to maybe to take a step away from genocide for a moment, but the messaging being sent to Russian soldiers more broadly is a message of tolerance of atrocity crimes generally, Mm -hmm. and that the type of language, dehumanizing language used against Ukrainians, the, the denial of even sort of an identity of being Ukrainian, the just constant hate speech that's being aired, this really encourages not just a risk of genocide, but all types of war crimes mm-hmm. and atrocities being committed against Ukrainian people. In terms of the risk of genocide itself, which I do believe exists in Ukraine, I think that the international community, the U- United Nations, really every country should just be hammering as a talking point and insisting to Russia that it must stop the broadcast of this constant hate speech, that this really needs to be said in a much more intense and, and, and repeated much more, because I feel like it's not being stressed enough how very volatile this situation is. And it's really important that this kind of language that just festers hate and leads to a tolerance of violence not be allowed to just continue to be pumped into the airways. Specifically for the domestic audience, you're you're saying? For the domestic audience, I mean, you know, again, this is about preventing something from happening. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's for, you know, any soldier who might get called up and sent to Ukraine next week. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's, this is, it's just simply, it is very, very dangerous to have this kind of language being spread across state media Mm -hmm. at a time when the Ukrainian people are very, very vulnerable. And I really just think it needs to be a priority of everyone to to insist that it stop now. Is there a precedent for focusing on state messaging or state broadcasting in the sense that you're describing? Or is that what you're what you're proposing is a sort of novel approach. Well, I wouldn't say that it's novel, but I would say, I mean, you know, look at, for example, Myanmar and look at what happened with the Rohingya. I mean, after the fact, right now we have one of the largest lawsuits being filed by Rohingya against Facebook for what? For allowing, Mm -hmm. just simply allowing the propagation, the continued just spewing of hate speech, which led to what? Which led to genocide. Mm -hmm. You know, and Facebook didn't, they just didn't do enough to stop it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's not so much that whether it's it's novel, but it, but it, it's a regular feature of sort of like the warning signs, right? Mm-hmm. So we know this, you know, so why not address it? Dr. Varaki also explained how genocidal intent is established legally and how the term can be used politically as well. You need to show, you know, that there is a particular... I would say a policy, you know, uh, mm. some people try to replace also intent with a particular genocidal policy. It's not like random people. For example, you in Rwanda from the radio, and we had a case before the ICD, there were statements, you know, broadcasters calling, go and, uh, and track down the cockroaches. The cockroaches, you mm. know, it was a very clear message, yeah. you know, to, to start the genocide. Mm-hmm. In other cases, you may have even papers, the old times, you know, the old good times. <laughs> you could have state paper, state policies, you know, documenting, okay? Mm -hmm. Nowadays, uh, that's why I'm saying I'm talking about interception, I'm talking about other types of of technologies and tools. 
there, there could be documents, but also you can try to infer that from patterns, you know, from statements, from, from behaviors, from inaction, from indirect incur- encouragement, from indirect endorsement of particular policies, you right. know, for right. many, many things that I think what happened in Ukraine, and this is where I, I see why some people claim that there could be elements of genocide, is that there were elements, you know, that the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian nation does not exist, but of, even if it is, exists, they are Nazis, mm-hmm. okay? And we have a, a name to denazify Ukraine, mm-hmm. and these people, because they are Nazis, they must be, I, I cannot use the language, not exterminated, but, you know, we show from uh, testimonies from victims that when Russian soldiers committed different type of atrocities, you know, they were particularly cruel because... In their mind, they were so indoctrinated yeah. that the Ukrainians, you know, were not people worth of living, right. you know, because they were all Nazis, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean, you know. So this is my understanding when some legal experts, or I would say mainly uh, journalists and others, talk about uh, genocide. But I would, I would just highlight that we must be very, very careful. It remains to, to be seen. Now, with Ukraine, I would say that it's more complicated. I don't think they want, I, I think it would be, Unless there is evidence that I don't know, yeah. you know, I don't personally know right. that there is a particular evidence that there is an intent that you want to destroy this, that the Ukrainians as a nation. Yeah. Okay. But here it's more complicated even because the Russian official propaganda is that there is no Ukrainian nation. Do you, do you see what I mean? We are all the same nation. Yeah. They, they, why should they exist as a separate sovereign state? Mm-hmm. They are not a separate nation. So it's, a, it's kind of contradictory over there, you know, I would say that, and that's why, maybe we'll be surprised, that's why at this stage, you know, based on the evidence we have now, and the evidence the investigative teams on the ground collect, we talk about war crimes and crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. I think the threshold of, uh, of genocide is very, very high to be reached. Mm-hmm. And as I say, from my understanding until now, unless there is something I totally miss, I have to be very, very clear, you know, right. unless there is this particular evidence, I think it's very, it's very difficult now to talk about genocide. I, w- I want to say one more thing. We have proceedings before the International Court of Justice from the very beginning of this conflict where Ukraine asked the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, you know, to order provisional measures against Russia to stop the military invasion, because Russia, what did Russia claim? One of the arguments was all that there is genocide taking place in Eastern Ukraine. That's why we intervened to rescue the Russian speaking population. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the court at that time uh, said, we don't have evidence of genocidal acts on behalf of the Ukrainian state. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Ukraine, apart from that, apart from asking the court to order Russia to stop the military invasion, also kind of ask the court to determine that genocide takes place on behalf of Russia, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. I think this is very, very unlikely. If we go into the proceedings, into the real proceedings later, it's something to, that remains to be seen parallelly with proceedings before national fora or international fora. But I would say that the usage of genocide is mainly for political purposes, you know, because it carries this massive semiotics and symbolism mm-hmm. and it touches upon it triggers sensitive reaction you understand right. emotional reaction right there is no state that wants to be 
accused of having committed genocide. Look at modern Turkey right. nowadays and the Armenian genocide. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there is something like that. So if you say that a state is responsible for genocide, at policies immediately, you know, this state will say, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. Like look at Myanmar. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. We didn't do anything with the Rohingya. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we didn't persecute this particular group. Yeah. However, we see that politicians use it again and again because it figures it's 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 a it's it's a linguistic propaganda it's a tool you know yeah. you know they use that professor finkel warned me that it can be dangerous to rely on legislators for designations in this field are there any problems that you see with relying on governments as opposed to judicial bodies to reach this designation i mean like cuz you know the, say the congress or the president isn't necessarily equipped to you know, accuse people of criminal activity. Right. So, so I'm actually, I'm quite, honestly quite critical of, you know, politi of politicians legislating on those, to on those topics. I was perfectly fine with President Biden, you know, making this determination. What I'm less fine with is, legis is legislate those things. And to be honest, that's what quite, quite a few East European and also, not, and also not East European parliaments did. Not just now, but even even in, pre, even in, previous, uh, in previous instances of mass violence. So, so what's, what's, what's an example so, of this? So, for instance, the Holodomor, which, which has been legislated as genocide in the Ukraine, and, mm -hmm. I'm, very, and I'm very critical about, about this because it prevents any meaningful debate and even if you no know, more evidence comes out and the perspective does change as long as it's as long as it's in the books, then it would have any, any practical effects. In fact, it bounds it bounds the hands of historians in a way that it shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And it's again not to single out Ukraine, it's also true for Poland in the case of Katani, for Azerbaijan in the case of Angela massacre, for the Baltic states in the case of in the case of deportations of local populations by the Soviet. So so that's actually quite widespread. Mm -hmm. So I'm finding politicians calling a spade a spade. I am I'm very critical of legislative bodies still putting it down on paper as the law of the land. I see. That's not their job. In your opinion, and I know this isn't the top priority necessarily, but as somebody who is a Russia studies person, one question I have when having this conversation about designating Russian war crimes in Ukraine, possibly genocide, what do you think the best approach is to convince, in terms of adjudication, that would leave the most Russians convinced that these war crimes or this genocide did indeed happen? Like if President Biden going on the news and saying that's genocide will likely not convince many Russians that their troops have committed atrocities in Ukraine. Are there other procedures that could have more, more of an effect on the hearts and minds of Russians? I think it depends on the time frame. You know, in the right now or in the foreseeable future, no, I don't think anything would convince the Russian public that what is going on, not even genocide, but war crimes, crimes against humanity in general. Yeah. In the longer term, if we get to the point where we can talk freely about history in Russia and about the war in Russia, then probably the most effective way to do it would be through public education and to curriculum in schools, maybe legal accountability of people Sorry, of people 
perpetrated those crimes, and Ukraine does that. But that also needs to that first and most first and foremost needs to be an internal branching conversation. Right. right? We can't convince them from the outside. That's just not how yeah. things work. That's not how it works in Germany. Mm-hmm. And Germany is the best is the best case of a nation accepting its its responsibility. Their attempts to force the determination or them from the outside backfired. So, using using Germany as an example, if that's the, I mean, it's hard. It's it sounds wrong to say if if Nazi Germany is a best case scenario, but but if 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 what happened there is a, a model for what could be hoped for in terms of Russian public perceptions, what would be how would that play out? Like Russia would be, you know, destroyed, or what? What how exactly would it work? Well, you know, so so maybe not Nazi Germany, but post Nazi Germany <laughs> right. would certainly would certainly be would certainly be a good, a good scenario now where the Russians to be destroyed. You know, it's not for me. Sure. I have no impact on yeah. that, and I don't know what what it takes it what it means in practice. Yeah. But in terms of what it would what it would require, yes, I think it would require changing internal conversations or teaching accepting responsibility. Right. Apologizing, talking about that openly in schools, in public culture, you know, holding trials, and it takes decades. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, it's all process. One of the the key components to determining, as I understand it, to determining genocide and and possibly other war atrocities has to do with the intent of the aggressor of the of the you know the the perpetrator. What is admissible? either in a legal sense or in a political sense, when it comes to determining the intent of, say, the Russian military in Ukraine. Right. So, so again, we're, we're having two different conversations here, right, and I'm right. less qualified to talk about what will be admissible in the court of law, but, uh, yeah. but we will certainly need to, what we will need to have to establish intent is course to show that it does exist, and I think we clearly have established that on the high level, the state level, mm-hmm. the rhetoric that is coming out that is coming out of Moscow that is all over the Russian state media that is also in statements by public officials like Medvedev or even Putin that you know Ukrainians are not real people that Ukrainian identity is a fake that the state is a fake when you combine it to, you know when you take it together we certainly have this intent at the state level, we have this violence on the ground, the keys to connect those. Mm-hmm. Are there at the broader level? So, so to show that both individual perpetrators or the military contact, Rose Gvardia and Mojelli were actually affected by this intent, that there is a connection between violence and the rhetoric. And that's what I think we still do not have. So people who, who argue that the it is a genocide, myself included. We take the psychological leap of faith that, you know, that we assume that this that this rhetoric does affect mm-hmm. people on the ground, and we have pretty decent evidence to suggest that it does. Mm-hmm. But it's not full, and it will, and we will need more of that, mm-hmm. so especially when we want, if we want to hold individuals out, we need to show that this intent existed in each individual case that the soldier or the officer gave an order and pulled pull the trigger, they were, they were affected by, by this propaganda and acted within this intent, which again, from the legal point of view, is much harder to do than to say that, you, that there is general, you know, orders given to the military on how 
soldiers talk to the victims. That we do have, but you know, that's that's not uh, not enough to put individuals on trial, at least as of now. So in terms of, of media messaging, you know, where there are there is a lot of this rhetoric about essentially denying the legitimacy of the of Ukrainian statehood. In terms of making connections to soldiers' activity in the aggregate, are you then basically looking at like media reports where they're interviewing the victims or the uh, the eyewitnesses to massacres, and soldiers are saying things like things that sort of echo what are said in the state media? Is that the kind of that's the lo- that's the logical connection? For instance, yeah. So, and we had some instances of you know of people fresh. Of Russians again, as reported by the victims, yeah. when Russian soldiers used violence against Ukrainians, uh, they justified by what is being written in Komsomolskaya Pravda and other newspapers. So that would be type of evidence. All intercepted calls, which uh, Ukrainian security services are doing a wonderful job, job, job intercepting and posting online where they talk about their goals to kill Ukrainians as such mm-hmm. without any distinction. So that would, that would be a type of evidence, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some documents that will get captures, may, captured, maybe documents, but mostly for now we rely on those intercepted calls and victims reports. Returning to Dr. Varaki, I asked her about successes and failures in national attempts to reconcile with past genocides and atrocities. For instance, what about Germany and the Holocaust and Turkey and the Armenian genocide? That's a very difficult question because you compare Germany, post, post-World War uh, Germany, you know, uh, and, and, and Turkey. And you see that, I, I can give you another example from former Yugoslavia, Serbia, for example. They, you know, they haven't accepted it. It's a stigma. It is a stigma at the end of the day. You know, as I said before, you cannot find any any state that is proud of being accused, right. you know, of having committed genocide. It is a stigma. And all states, you know, deny that and they try, you know, to oppose those claims. Now, when it comes to issues of reconciliation, if I understood correctly a little bit this issue, you know, I think it, it becomes very problematic, mm-hmm. especially in our case when we talk about Ukraine and Russia, we're talking about people who have common relatives, okay? They're yeah. people who are living in one country and they have uh, the brothers and sisters are in the other country. I think the damage on the social uh, uh, institution of both societies is it's massive, massive. It would require uh, generations, you know, the, the people have suffered so much. How can you forgive? It becomes very, very difficult, you know. Uh, imagine a child who has lost both his parents. Like, uh, this is something that we haven't realized because it's an ongoing conflict for three months now. But I'm, I'm petrified thinking about that. And we're talking about two massive uh, countries as well. Right, right. In terms of the, the formal legal bodies and, and national or inst- international institutions, who or what is best suited to carry out the designation of genocide or, or to say it is, doesn't qualify? Like, I know that the Ukrainian attorney general has so many thousands of allegations that it's working through, and it's named a few Russian soldiers that it's going to charge. Is that typically how these things are 
handled or is it an international body or I know that you've mentioned they've invited the the ICJ, the IC, ICJ. Yeah. so there there is there is an international yeah. involvement here like how, how does this sort of thing handle yeah I think there is a hyperactivity this is how I teach it of international institutions and international lawyers during the last three months of course as I keep saying we international lawyers we thrive in crisis uh, it's an ontological issue for us we have some unprecedented phenomenon going on. So it's, for the first time, you have an ongoing conflict, ongoing. And from the, very first be- from the very beginning of this conflict, you have a parallel activation of proceedings, as I say, whether it's the ICJ and the ICC, the International Criminal Court, where the prosecutor of the ICC opened an investigation almost immediately. Okay, open an investigation almost, almost immediately. Yesterday, he made a statement that he has 42 people on the ground uh, in Ukraine, collecting evidence with massive financial and expertise, technical support by many countries. So Netherlands seconded forensic experts to the ICC. Uh, France did the same. The U.S. did the same. There is financial support. So there is an unprecedented, I would say, coordinated effort, something we haven't seen in other conflicts, to put it simply like that. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's, uh, that can be discussed, why this conflict is so different from other conflicts. Uh, now, today, the Ukrainians themselves started a war crime trial. It's the first Russian soldier, 21-year-old boy, you know, is put on trial for having deliberately killed a civilian, a 62-year-old civilian. Now, what we call here, it's a small fish. Okay, so you see, uh, he's tried and prosecuted for, the, for a war crime. I follow a lot the Ukrainian general prosecutors. He has said we have about we have identified eleven thousand cases, more or less, of war crimes, and we have arrested about forty people. You know, forty Russian uh, soldiers. Mm-hmm. I think what we are going to see is that we are going to see many different trials before national forum. Not only Ukraine, I would say that. Uh, we may see that in other countries where they activate what we call universal jurisdiction. So Germany has done that, France has done that, Ireland has done that. And, uh, and then for the most serious crimes, you know, the ICC kicks in. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that the Ukrainians, despite all this assistance that have been received during the last three months, they have the capacity, maybe they have, maybe they, we will see that to prosecute that high level of the most serious crimes, you know. Mm-hmm. I would suggest, my, my understanding is that it would be much, I would, it would be more, um, I, would, I don't want to use the word efficient, but I would say it, may, it would make more sense in many levels to have the big fees or the most serious crimes before in the National Tribunal. And we have an International Tribunal, we have the ICC. So when it comes to war crimes, crimes against humanity, we have the court, the ICC, the International Permanent Court. Now, when it comes to the crime of aggression, for me, that's the most interesting crime, to be honest, between you and me in this particular conflict, waging an aggressive, waging an aggressive war. Why, why is that? Because what happened in Ukraine, it's, a, it's an illegal invasion and mm-hmm. flagrant violation of international law. It's an aggressive war that cannot be justified under the UN Charter or anything. So we have the crime of aggression, which is a leadership crime in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Mm-hmm. But based on the jurisdictional structure of the crime of aggression, the prosecutor of the ICC cannot investigate the crime of aggression for Russian leaders because Russia is not the state party to the Rome Statute. Mm-hmm. The prosecutor can investigate war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide. 
but not the crime of aggression. And that's why, for me, since we have the crime of aggression in the Rome Statute during the last two years, for me, this is the most interesting thing because that's why some uh, experts here in UK, such as Professor Philip Sands uh, and others, they propose a separate tribunal, a special tribunal just for the crime of aggression in Ukraine. Now, I see why they propose, and for me, this is the real key issue. Uh, but again, I think, it, I believe, realistically speaking, that that's, it's very, it's not, not so easy to be uh, substantiated, to fulfill that. But I see why, because in, nine, in 2022, in the 21st century, waging an aggressive war should not be acceptable. Because if we didn't have the war, we wouldn't have the rest all the other atrocities. Right, right. And that's why the crime of aggression is considered to be the supreme crime. You know, you initiate an aggressive way, a war, and then you start having war crimes and all the other atrocities that we discussed until now. Part three of today's episode, the politics of genocide allegations and the consequences of taking them seriously. Once again, I turned first to Professor Rosenberg. Do you think that's the, is, is it more important for the public to be focused on atrocities as a concept or sh is the, is the compulsion to, to rise to a genocide conversation? Because at least, you know, I know we, we started off saying that legally there's no hierarchy, but in terms of kind of public discourse, genocide does kind of galvanize more than any other word, it's, it seems. Would you say that, is it right that, that, that the public kind of goes toward the genocide conversation because it mobilizes people the best? Or would it be a more honest or more accurate public conversation to keep it centered on the notion of atrocities? Let me, let me put it this way. I think that the Ukrainian people are at extraordinary risk. They have already suffered a huge number of violations. Right. And so in that sense, I think that from a Ukrainian perspective, what matters the most is how do you galvanize support to, to end this, yeah. right? So, I, yeah. so my view, I want to be very sensitive to that, that I understand that, you know, w what, what needs to be said in order to get people to care about this when, when you're really, you know, risking losing your life is not, it's not an academic debate. Yeah. But I would also say that for me, everything that we are seeing happening, these are horrifying acts that in their own right, irrespective of whether or not they amount to genocide or whether or not there is a risk to genocide cause irreparable harm and damage to people. You know, we are seeing reports of sexual violence being carried out Sexual violence, particularly in the manner that it's that it is being reported as having been carried out in Ukraine, it doesn't need to be anything other than that to be a really life-altering, incredibly traumatic, difficult experience to recover from. So, so I think we right. we need to be aware that there is a risk. I and I do believe this. There is a serious risk of the situation devolving into a potential genocide. I also believe that there is, there are ongoing atrocities happening now and that the urgency has to be to care as much about stopping that 
as anything else. What are the, the, the groups or institutions or bodies out there that are, in your opinion, best equipped to adjudicate these questions? Obviously, while the conflict is ongoing, it's, it's very difficult to even get access to the sites where these crimes are being committed. I'd be interested to know, how do you assess a combatant's ability to adjudicate these questions in the middle of a war, and then what other institutions out there in the world handle these sorts of things? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of the one of the major things that we're seeing that, at least to me, seems fairly obvious is whether we look at the history of Chechnya, whether we look at Syria, we, what we're seeing play out in in uh, in Ukraine involves obviously direct perpetrators, right? The the Russian mm-hmm. team is committing the crimes, but there's also a very serious issue around uh, command responsibility and just a, a what appears to be a real failure to enforce the laws of armed conflict to, you know, or any type of punishment when there's, when there's violations. So some of the people responsible are not necessarily, or who should be held ultimately responsible are not necessarily in Ukraine. Right. They're really high level people. But for right now, I think that one, I would say, you know, following the lead of Ukraine is what the international community needs to do. I really think it's important whether we're speaking diplomatically, whether we're speaking, you know, sort of from a thinking what might be like a, an off-ramp kind of peace settlement situation, mm-hmm. but also because the conflict is still ongoing in terms of justice, that Ukraine's lead needs to be followed because justice during conflict, the, the, the threat of justice is oftentimes suggested to be a deterrent, meaning you, commander in the field, if you hear that, you know, there's investigators, you're going to shape up and not commit crimes, right? Because you don't want to get arrested. That's a theory of how Mm -hmm. this works. Another theory is that, in fact, it actually prolongs conflict because it really becomes sort of the only way you you evade justice is by winning. I imagine. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so in that sense, I, that's why I think that that is just and right now, because there is an ongoing conflict, that the steps that Ukraine takes is what the international community should support, but not go beyond that because it's a it's a very delicate situation. And what does that mean exactly to to, fo- to follow Ukraine's lead? Does that mean that when they when the Attorney General of Ukraine, for instance, presses charges against a Russian soldier, the Ukraine's allies then do what exactly? Well, I think that Ukraine is is working you know, both domestically, but also bilaterally and multilaterally. So those are sort of case specific of what, what type of assistance Ukraine might need or, or, or might request. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I think in terms of complementarity with the ICC, that, that Ukraine is, is quite clear about kind of, you know, what they're doing and, and what they might need assistance from in terms of investigations with the International Criminal Court. I see. It's important to remember, you know, that it's Ukraine it's it's Ukraine, not anybody else, who filed the declaration granting the ICC jurisdiction to begin with, right? So the ICC is is investigating this situation at the behest of Ukraine, and I think it's really important that we always remember that that it's not the international community or these you know other countries that said we're sending this international organization to Ukraine. It's actually Ukraine that has stepped up in so many different fora 
and embraced the rule of law Mm -hmm. and insisted upon the rule of law being carried out. And that's a really powerful, it's a very powerful thing to see take place in real time. Mm -hmm. And as someone both who's, you know, a lawyer, but also, you know, from a older democracy than, than Ukraine, I guess I would say that it's, it is very humbling as well to realize that the weight that they give to the rule of law. When sifting through this evidence, when adjudicating the allegations of war crimes, do you think, is there any, is there one approach that stands out among others that you think would actually win over more hearts and minds among Russians? Or this is hardly the priority I I certainly realize, but, you know, I guess like it would be nice if Russians, if this process actually you know, if it, if it uh, changed some minds in Russia where, where the invasion you know, is obviously not, uh, less controversial than many in the West would, would like it to be. Is there any precedent for handling th- these crimes in a certain way that the perpetrating side is more receptive to? That's a great question. And, and what I would say is that criminal law is not well suited and doesn't really have the tools for what you're thinking of. But there is the field of law, transitional justice, that can be brought in and sort of built around. And criminal law then becomes just one part of it. And so when you are at the thinking about justice, it's not just criminal, right? It's not just the sort of criminal accountability, but you're also thinking about how can we do establishing the truth, which may take lots of forms that are have nothing to do with the criminal prosecution. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There are various peace and reconciliation activities that that can take place as well as, quite frankly, thinking about types of institutional reforms and changes that maybe have come to light in terms of, as you pointed out, you know, like some of the media issues that are perhaps inhibiting Russian people from from understanding what is happening. But ultimately, criminal law and criminal prosecutions as a form of kind of getting the the prosecuted side to, you know, to be happy that they were, you know, not happy, I suppose, but like happy with the process or like, right. that's not a, it's, it's a very unlikely thing to have happen as, I, mean, mm-hmm. I don't mean to be like, super cynical about this, but it's just really not the goal of criminal law. And it's why there has to be much more, much more built around this than just simply a criminal case, because you're exactly right. I mean, the people of Russia, they, they have to be able to come back into the international community to, and we have to, we have to find a way to, to tell the, this story and establish a truth of what's happened so that there isn't denialism, you know, and that there can be healing and that there can be hopefully some type of understanding. In more ways than one, an ugly aspect to prosecuting war crimes and atrocities is counting the bodies. I asked Professor Finkel how this works with allegations of genocide. Does the number of victims in these crimes have any bearing on whether, on, on the, the nature of their atrocity, or is it entirely intent like if we can if you could find rhetoric saying that they're being killed specifically for being ukrainian or for fighting for ukraine does that shoot them straight to the top of the of atrocity whether even if it's two people versus two million i mean like does no how how do numbers play into this 
Right. So, so that's one of the uh, trickiest gray zones mm. of this discussion because nobody knows what the numbers are. Right. What the convention requires, actions take with the intent to destroy a group in whole in part, right. but nobody told us what in part, yeah, what part yeah. means. Later, the termination, like in the case of Supremitsa, well, the ICTI determined that it needs to be substantial numbers without specifying what those substantial numbers are. In the case of Soviet it was seven to 8,000 people. I, I think we will, ease, uh, unfortunately, we will easily meet those, meet those numbers in the case of Ukraine. Right. But one or two people, no, I would call, I, you know, I wouldn't dare, you know, to come out and say, genocide analysts would write talking about right. thousands of people. Right, right. In terms of what you're reading in the in the media, are you finding? Is it? I mean, I'm trying to to kind of understand the nature of the 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 potential genocidal intent on the part of the Russian authorities and the Russian troops. Is it is it an, is it like the extermination of Ukrainians as a as a people, or is it? Are they targeting actual combatants? Because my my impression is a lot of the eyewitness reports are that they. I mean, there's certainly a lot of wanton violence at just drunken soldiers raping and pillaging, and it's absolutely horrible. But in terms of targeting, it seems like a lot of it is they're looking for people. They're looking for evidence that someone was a combatant. And in that case, is it are they are they is it is it national extermination if they're going after enemy combatants? So, so they're, they're, doing, they're doing much more than that. And you're absolutely right. There is a lot of random or indiscriminate violence that wouldn't be enough. Mm-hmm. You know, for for determination of genocide, when we what genocide requires is a deliberate target, deliberate targeting, right. and we do have evidence of that. So not just combatants, but they have ex- we have evidence that they're explicitly targeting people associated with Ukrainian national identity or the Ukrainian state. So not just not just soldiers, but former soldiers and their families, right. state officials and their families, veterans. Mm and their families. Mm-hmm. So the genocide is a crime against civilians. And that we do see within all this phantom violence that you describe. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of background violence, which is indiscriminate, but within it, there is quite a lot of very targeted violence that is going on. Has there been any evolution in terms of what is considered a protected group that is that, that if targeted qualifies as, as either genocide or, or a, a heightened form of war atrocity? Because I know that my impression is that initially after World War II, it was defined in terms that would be considered t- too narrow today. Yes. And I still, and that's another problem of the convention there for, for protected groups, uh, ethnic groups, national groups, religious groups, or racial groups. That's certainly not enough, and there is absolutely no reason why, say, gender groups or age groups or especially political groups should not be part of the convention. That's clearly a problem. The convention leaves too many groups out But in this case, there is a clear targeting of national, not ethnic groups, because, you know, many people who are targeting ethnically Russians or Jews or others, but a clear attempt to destroy a Ukrainian national at national event. Many, probably most people in the West, are shocked and outraged by the Russian military's actions in Ukraine. There's public pressure to condemn these atrocities in the strongest possible language, which likely means calling it genocide, as Biden has done in the United States. But the West hands aren't exactly clean either, whether we're talking about history or the modern day. 
I asked Professor Moses what this means for the West's capacity to hold Russia accountable. One of the threads that I've noticed in conversations about recognizing genocide in Ukraine or really anywhere is that the states that are in a position to recognize it and then potentially act on it, the, there, there are these consequences of reaching that designation on one hand. I'm not sure about legally, but at least sort of morally and politically, it, it then compels some kind of action, whether it's prevention or prevention of further genocide or, or punishing the aggressor or something like that. And then on the other hand, th and this seems like it was, it was a, a prominent feature of, of genocide being introduced in the first place, is that the powers that the, the states that have the power to do anything about this, they are concerned about their own liability for ongoing or past crimes that might be considered genocide. In the United States, obviously, there's slavery and treatment right. of Native Americans. And okay. depending on how you define it, I imagine there's other things yeah. as well. In terms of acting in Ukraine, do you think that the United States is at all is thinking about that? Or other nations? Is, is, is France thinking about that? Are these concerns that they have? So uh, a kind of a clean hands concern. I mean, you know, well, look, there's I don't know exactly what's transpiring in the bowels of the State Department, obviously, right? Sure. But we, but we know that uh, the U.S. president did use the term genocide, but we also know that right. Emmanuel Macron exercised caution in that regard, and he, 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 was, against, he was against that notion. And uh, from my reading of what the international lawyers are saying, they're talking more about war crimes and crimes against humanity mm. rather than genocide. It's my uh, colleagues who are historians, mm. who, especially Eastern Europe, uh, are more enthusiastic about using the concept of genocide. Mm. Uh, I understand why. It's because you know, they read Russian and they're looking at, at Russian politics and social media right. and seeing a lot of hair-raising genocidal rhetoric, which is undeniably there. Yeah. Okay. Now the thing is, is that for lawyers though, is that just because, you know, such an, you know, some official newspaper comes up with a hair raising article, doesn't mean that's evidence for genocide because to prosecute someone for genocide, you need a particular military officer or, or someone in a command chain who can be demonstrated to have issued orders or be responsible for subordinates who committed acts which can be shown to be genocide, you know, it becomes very messy yeah. and, and very forensic, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the weeds, Americans like to say, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because, because lawyers are, are going to be talking about prosecuting particular individuals, uh, whereas the, my colleagues, these historians, and I think you're interviewing one of them, are seeing, you know, a general at genocidal atmosphere, yeah. which I think is definitely there. Mm -hmm. Just definitely there. Do you think that is there a way to talk about the the type of violence that that we're seeing in Ukraine perpetrated by Russian soldiers? Is there could could we simply talk about it in such a way that the global community dis distributes its attention more equally? Because I, I mean, one of the criticisms that the Russians side raises regularly is that, you know, oh, the Americans are so upset about what's happening in uh, in Ukraine. In fact, the Foreign Minister Lavrov recently said, oh, just if you're losing sleep, or he had some kind of flippant remark yeah. like this, but if you're losing sleep, imagine that instead of Ukraine, it's Palestine or it's Africa, and instead of Russia, yeah. it's the United States. If you cannot sleep because of Russia-Ukrainian conflict, there are some advices. To, to, to calm you down. First, imagine that this is happening in Africa. 
Imagine this is happening in the Middle East. Imagine Ukraine is Palestine. Imagine Russia is the United States. Why? I mean, it it does seem like the the terrible tragedy in Ukraine is is more shocking to Western audiences than other conflicts that have also claimed lots yeah. of lives. Is that is that a consequence of the way we speak about it, or is it something deeper in terms of cultural this and yeah. that? Yeah. Well, you're not going to get me on the record agreeing with Lavrov. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's let's make that. Let's first let's let that clear, right? Uh, but let me put it this way: quite a few people have noted or observed there that there are a number of other conflicts transpiring in in the globe today in Tigray region of Ethiopia, in southern Sudan, and you um, know, and on Yemen, which are not gaining the same attention in the West. Now, whether this is an example of racism or something else is uh, is an interesting question to ponder. Uh, I would answer it this way. A, you know, this is taking place in the heart of Europe. And so obviously Europeans are going to be exercised by it. You know, there's a refugee crisis. There's millions of, of uh, Ukrainians in Poland, Moldova, right. uh, and other parts of East Central, many in Berlin now where I am. Mm -hmm. So it goes without saying that Europeans' uh, attention is fixed there. And I don't think there's anything sinister about that. I mean, that said, the Europeans will... You know, who did, especially the Germans took in, uh, you know, many Syrian refugees have, you know, and quite generously, I think that's important to say compared to many other European countries, you know, that they were let, they were met ultimately, you know, without the warm, the warm greetings that, um, that the Ukrainian ones have, but, you know, we don't have time to get into that. Sure. Sure. Now regarding those other conflicts, well. You know, the West is, is deeply implicated in the, or parts of the West are deeply implicated in the Yemen one because Saudi ordinance is purchased from the UK and the US and possibly Germany, though I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure on that one. And how much have the, have these uh, arms suppliers and their governments done to restrain the Saudis and their coalition partners in basically destroying Yemen? And it's been the largest humanitarian crisis for a long time until recently. Mm. And, you know, with the massive starvation and so forth. But we don't hear much about it. And, you know, I, I, I'd like to know why. I mean, this is before the Ukraine crisis as well. Right. 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 Uh, but it's, it's not been seen as a crisis of the West or something that challenges the West yeah. in the same way that the, the Ukraine was. Well, in this case, the West is implicated in it. Mm -hmm. And I do think that difficult questions need to be asked there. I raise these same concerns with Dr. Varaki. Is there any reluctance that you're aware of on the part of, of Western states to elevate the crime of aggression to the very top? Are there reasons for Western countries with you know ongoing military operations elsewhere where civilians are dying and a, and a, a fairly recent colonial past? Yeah. Should they be concerned about... Charges of wars of aggression also, or? Yeah, there are two issues here. You know, the first okay. issue is the, the argument of what about it, as we say. Sure. We saw that from yeah. the very beginning. You know, the first statement of President Putin was like, don't point the finger at me, you know, because look what you did in 2003 in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Let's start with Iraq, which was an illegal evasion, okay? Full stop. Yeah. It, could, it cannot be justified under international law. Right. Now, I don't buy this what about this. I find it very difficult. I acknowledge I'm one of the lawyers when I teach international law. I teach my students and I say, 
2003, illegal, stop, no excuses, non-legal, you know. Mm -hmm. And maybe the West should learn a bit of the mistake because now, you know, you give the same arguments, you know, to, to people like Putin and other people like Erdogan and other authoritarian leaders and say, don't tell me about international law because look what you did. Yeah. Still, I think the current evasion is more different than what happened in 2003. You know, I think the gravity of the crimes, I think, and we talk about a nuclear power, mm -hmm. okay, that makes a, a reference to nuclear weapons. So the other about is there. Now, when it comes to the crime of aggression, no one liked the crime. No one wanted the crime to be there, of course. You know, I mean, imagine that it took us 70 years to incorporate the crime of aggression in the Rome Statute when in 1945, 1946, in the Nuremberg trial, the Nazis were prosecuted for the crime against peace. Mm -hmm. So we had the crime of aggression already, but at that time we had what we call victor's justice, okay? So from one side you have the US, Soviet Union, France, UK, and from the other side you have the losers. So it was easy for them to have that. Yeah. But afterwards, all big powers, all big powers were very hesitant. They were very afraid about the crime of aggression. The Americans wanted an exception like that if we use war and force, with humanitarian intervention, would that be accepted? And they say no, okay? So it's a job. You have a crime in 1945, but you cannot incorporate until 2017 and later, you know, to be activated years later. Yeah. Now, this proposal for a special tribunal has been criticized that it's a kind of similar to Nuremberg. It's again Victor's justice. So why should we do a particular tribunal just for Russia? Mm -hmm. And why didn't we do something in 2003? Well, in 2003, to put simply like that, the crime was not activated. You know, we didn't have it in the law statute. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, uh, I mean, uh, I didn't see anyone, you know, to say, oh, let's do a special tribunal for aggression you know, for, for the UK and, mm -hmm. and Britain, uh, UK, US and Australia and all the coalition powers, okay? We are, we, are, we are not, I mean, we know how that works. Yeah. Having said that, for me, still, I think that the particular aggressive war is something that is very, very exceptional, the way it happened, because what happened here was like that Putin said, uh, Ukraine is a sovereign territory, sovereign state, but it's not for us. Doubted the sovereignty of uh, an independent state. I mean, the Americans and the Brits, and I'm not here to defend 2003, far from me, I say it's illegal, blah, blah, blah. They tried to find a legal justification, but they didn't say Iraq doesn't exist. You know, it's, it's not like that, okay? And they didn't go there for like something that happened in 2014 in Crimea to annex the territory. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. That didn't happen. Right. So we, we, we can talk about that, but I, I have to say, I see the problematic, but I, I don't buy it. Right, now. right. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I, I, I completely agree with you although you're the you're the expert i'm just the guy talking oh, to you no, no. but um it's it's difficult right because i mean we don't know how far the ukraine invasion will go it's only just begun yeah. i suppose so ho although hopefully it'll end soon but but um you know I at least as far as we know the number of people who who have the number of civilians who have died in this war is far less than the number of civilians that have died over the last 20 years in iraq yeah and yet and yet the in terms of the law the way that genocide is written and, and the way that we, 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 the way that intent is so important, it's the Ukraine invasion that actually seems to, to qualify for more of these atrocity convictions or, or designations than say the, the U S invasion yeah, yeah, or the definitely. allied invasion of Iraq. Yeah. So 
yeah, it's, I'm not sure what my point is there. It's, it's I mean, I, I, I guess the reason I raise it is I feel like that's part of the frustration that 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 the, the Russian regime or Russian patriots yeah. I sometimes express. I mean, I don't have like an answer for that. It's it, it's just the way the law is written, I guess. Yeah, but also. Um- I see your point, but this is something I work a lot. You know, I'm thinking a lot about that. I challenge myself. I teach it yeah. to students that I'm interviewed, like here, you know. Mm-hmm. I think there are more. We, we have to try to, to address the whole discussion of what about this and, and, and everything, you know, uh, right. uh, from a more, um, from a broader perspective. I think there are more pieces in the puzzle. Like we cannot see that in an isolated way. Yeah. So, for example, you know, you have a regime like a Putin regime, yeah. okay, where you have massive propaganda, okay, you have authoritarianism. People cannot cannot protest. People who protest they immediately, you know, either they have to flee or they are in prison, okay. And then I, initially, I felt I was reading George Orwell. I'm sure you have read 1984, <laughs> which sure. says war, right? Yeah. yeah. The signs. Uh, so when they were saying this is not war. This is a special military operation. Or we don't, I, we don't attack civilians. Yeah. We never attack civilians. You know, I mean, even for people like me who I try to see a nuanced, broader picture, you know, challenge myself all the time. I see. Hold on. I mean, yeah. seriously. Now it's like a virtual reality. You cannot say this is not war. You cannot right. say you know we don't attack civilians. You cannot say. Oh, everything is about Ukrainian propaganda. I mean, there is propaganda. The first victim of of the war is truth. We mm. all, we always know that. Right. But there is something here, you know, that it's not like having two states who are in in conflict. It's like it's an ideological battle mm-hmm. to put it simply underneath as well. Mm-hmm. And we should try to address all these issues. Uh, having trying to see to, to contextualize. You understand what I mean? You know, like at this stage, whatever comes from. Kremlin, or, and I'm not saying that all the others, if I can put it like that, you know, they are the guardians of truth. Uh-huh. And I'm saying when they say this is not war, I'm sorry, but what is it? Yeah. I mean, uh, tell me what it is. Right. If, it, if this is not war, then what is it? And when you say, oh, the Ukrainians do not exist, they never existed as a nation, mm. like this kind of denial, you know, and uh, they're, they're, that's what, I think that that's what triggers also this massive reaction yeah. you know there is a un- kind of unanimous okay western reaction yeah. we have seen that state in africa we see some uh, the way they voted before the general assembly but we know also the elites of russia the presence of russia in the african continent okay and then the only countries that fully supported russia was like Eritrea. Mm-hmm. I-, I mean you see that more or less uh there, there is a kind of more unanimous, more unanimous re- reaction than other times. Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, also for people liberals, you know, I, I, I put myself there. I, I don't like to, to put a label, but I do it now, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's good to challenge ourselves all the time, but also it's good to say they're liberals. You know, there are some red lines that have been massively crossed. And at least in the West, I'm not here to support, we could, we could protest. Yeah, I, I could go into my university and say that what happened, you know, was, and now I mean, in London, I say 2003 illegal invasion. Right. Nobody arrests you. Crap. Yeah. I don't want to hear anything. I can say that. Yeah. That's not possible to say in a Russian university. Right. You know? Right. The last question I had was about the, the consequences of pursuing 
legal avenues here, pursuing designations, pursuing convictions. I mean, obviously, if you have someone in custody and you convict them, you can put them in jail. Or yeah. if you're in the U.S., you can execute them, I guess. In terms of these these large, these higher level yeah. trials, like you know, the universal kind of jurisdiction stuff, is the the purpose of holding those trials where, say, you know, you're essentially going against Putin or the, his his administration. Is it really is it symbolic or can there then be expanded sanctions or like what's what's the like it's I mean just in terms of of like you know you're you're spending taxpayers money to like pursue these things like what's the payoff Yeah Yeah this is a question that goes into the the whole foundational theory of, of justice of international justice or and by international justice I'm not talking only about the international criminal tribunal or special international but I'm talking about domestic trials you know with international profile as you say, right. I mean, if you see today, if you read today the statement by the Ukrainians, they say it's a symbolic. We want to send a message, you know, that those crimes will not remain unpunished. And it's quite unprecedented what happens. It's an ongoing conflict, you know, and they still they start a trial when the conflict is still ongoing. Yeah. Now, I, I will try to be very brief and very precise, which is very difficult. Okay. There are many purposes behind the trial. Okay, a trial can adjudicate, can attribute, you know, responsibility. First of all, you want to make, to acknowledge that someone is responsible, you know, individual accountability. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, you, it's, it's a kind of acknowledging, you know, what happened. It's, it's, it's righteous for the victims and for the relatives of the victims. They need an acknowledgement, you know, they, and they need retribution, you know, that the person, you know, who committed something, you know, has to pay some price for that. Right. But then we go broader to, to other issues. We talk about the expressiveness of these trials, you know, that they convey a message that those atrocities cannot remain unpunished, that they are not socially acceptable, right. you know, and morally acceptable in the 21st century. Uh, then there are other considerations about deterrence. I'm not that sure about deterrence of those trials. To be honest, you know, I don't think they, that we cannot create, we cannot prove the causality, the causation between uh, trial and deterrence. Mm -hmm. I have my doubts about deterrence, frankly speaking, because we have all these tribunals and still we have seen atrocities. Mm -hmm. However, maybe, you know, there is some amount of deterrence. Who knows? And then, you know, you, you, have, you create a historical record as well that cannot be doubted, you know, and that's very important, you know, especially... Uh, when you see so much propaganda, fake news, distorted reality, uh, not the reality, you need to set up a record, you know, that something, that this happens. Because if you hear that this is not war uh, and that people have not been killed, and uh, I mean, you need to, it's important, it's a historical record. And that was what happened in Nuremberg already, you know, when uh, there is a characteristic scene from the Nuremberg trial where there is a documentary they show in the Nuremberg, inside the courtroom. And it's shocking because it's a, and the, that was actually recorded by the, uh, the Soviets when they liberated Auschwitz. I mean, it was the first time that the public and the people show reality. So more than 70 years later, you know, we have social media, we have internet, we have technology, you know, setting a record straight is very important. So I would say that this is the case. Don't expect that everybody will be trialed. Very few people will be tried. Very few people. I know the critique against those trials are very expensive because we're talking about very serious crimes. You need forensic experts. We need lots of money. But we live in the 21st century. 
You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we discussed Russian atrocities committed against Ukrainians in the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. You heard from four experts on genocide, Eugene Finkel, an associate professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University and the author of the book Ordinary Jews, Choice and Survival During the Holocaust. Aaron Farrell Rosenberg, an adjunct professor at the University of Cincinnati's College of Law and an attorney specializing in international criminal law and reparations. Dirk Moses, a professor of global human rights history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the author of The Problems of Genocide and the senior editor of the Journal of Genocide Research. And Dr. Maria Varaki, a lecturer in international law at the War Studies Department, King's College London, and the co-director of the War Crimes Research Group. The Naked Proud is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Wherever you're tuning in, it, helps, it, it does help put this program in front of more people. Talk to the algorithm. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or in Russian or both, please consider making a donation at supportmedusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help the most, but we'll take whatever you can spare. Thank you for listening, and come back soon.